2: The Bowery Boys, episode 255, The Rescue of Grand Central. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys.
1: Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Boys.
2: Hi there. Welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today we thought we'd spend more time in yet another world-famous train station last week we regrettably saw the demise of penn station this week we're stepping into yet another great train station grand central terminal
1: last week we covered the sad fate of beautiful penn station the the original penn station that opened in 1910 and Due to the financial woes of its owner, the Pennsylvania Railroad was demolished in the early 1960s to make way for Madison Square Garden and Two-Penn Plaza.
2: Tom, that story was a real bummer, Mm -hmm. I have to say. Meanwhile, about a mile away from Penn Station, at 42nd Street and Park Avenue, Grand Central was actually facing a very similar fate and involving some of the same players. It's eerily similar, But of course, this story, the story of
1: Grand Central, has a much happier ending. And that's because of the success of hardworking activists, preservation-minded organizations, and a few celebrities who stood up to fight for the terminal. And in their efforts,
2: they would also bolster the legal standing of preservation laws, not just in New York City, but all over the United States. Their successes turned out to be far greater than just this one building.
1: Now today we're going to have major help telling this story because we're going to meet up with Kent Barwick, a man who knows this story intimately because he served as the president of the Municipal Arts Society during this fight. He's going to tell us what it was really like to be there. We cannot
2: wait to share that interview with you later in the show. Mm-hmm. So, all aboard as we witness the rescue of Grand Central. Grand Central. So, Tom, to talk about Grand Central, let's place it on a map for those who may not know. Situate the listener, please.
1: I think this might just be one of the easier situates (laughs) Mm -hmm. that you've ever asked me to do. We're talking about Grand Central Terminal, which is located at Park Avenue and 42nd Street. Today's terminal formally opened in 1913 and was designed in a lavish Beaux-Arts style. As we're going to discuss, it was constructed by the New York Central and Hudson River Railroad and owned by the Vanderbilts. It's a building you cannot miss because it actually separates two segments of today's Park Avenue. And today, it serves as the terminus for commuters on the Metro North Railroad and is also, of course, a major subway connection connecting to the original IRT line.
2: Not to mention all of those shops inside. It's actually a shopping destination and a food court
1: down Uh, in the basement. A concourse of (laughs) shopping and transportation options. Mm -hmm. Um, A whopping 750,000 people pass through the station every day, which, by the way, is nearly exactly the population of Seattle. So just imagine (laughs) every man, woman, and child in Seattle passing through the same building every day.
2: They were sick of the space needle and they wanted to see the sights of Manhattan all on one day. <laughs> and so let's get this out of the way. Of course, people may know it colloquially as Grand Central Station, but mm-hmm. we will call it Terminal, and in fact it says Grand Central Terminal on the facade.
1: Well, because it is a terminal. It's the the final stop uh for these trains. It's the terminus. Greg, there are actually two places technically called Grand Central Station right around the terminal. Do you know what they are?
2: Well, I think the first one is actually the subway. That's right. Right, because that's passing through, going all sorts of different directions. And the other one, well, it's more of a trick question, isn't the post office also called Grand Central Station?
1: Yes. So those are the only two Grand Central Stations that still stand today. Neither of those are the names of the building that stood here first, the first incarnation
2: of this train station.
1: Right. In 1871, Cornelius Vanderbilt, who owned the New York Central Railroad, built Grand Central Depot, which was seen as a very innovative U.S. railway station. It was also seen as pretty far north because... Nobody lived up here. You know, it was that was as far as the city leaders were willing to let smoky, dirty old trains descend into the city. And the depot had a life of how long? Well, it opened in 1871, but very quickly it outgrew its building. It just simply wasn't big enough to keep up with the demand of trains Uh, by the 1890s. There were about 500 trains a day departing from the station. Well, there are
2: so many people living in New York City, and plus the city itself has now grown around the station. By the
1: 1890s, it was in the middle of the city. You know, you and I yesterday took a tour of Grand Central Terminal with Deborah Zelser. Uh, who leads one of the Municipal Arts Society's Grand Central Tours. And she pointed out that one of the reasons the railroad was so successful is that Vanderbilt had essentially created the commuter because his railroad was one of the first to offer a cheaper ticket for regular daily riders. He lowered that price uh, for the ticket or commuted it. To commute is to lower or to diminish, which gives us commuter. Commuter. So anyway, around 1900, the Grand Central Depot was enlarged and renovated into something grander, Grand Central Station. The main building of which, the the head house is what they call it, increased from three to six floors, and it was an incredibly busy place, uh, like immediately. There were steam trains pulling down into its train yards, waiting for their turns to pull up to the platforms. But almost immediately after it opened, tragedy struck. On January 8th, 1902, when the railroad suffered a terrible crash, it was caused in part by the smoky conditions uh, and poor visibility. Fifteen people were killed when one train collided with another in a smoky tunnel just north of the station. The next year, in 1903, the state government took action and required the railroad to switch to electricity by banning steam locomotives from the Harlem River all the way down to 42nd Street. They gave them five years to,
2: huh. to switch over. I mean, this wasn't a revolutionary idea because over on the west side, you had Penn Railroad digging the tunnels under the Hudson River to connect with the, what would be their Penn Station, and those tunnels would service electric trains. Then you had the New York City subway, which was also being dug under Manhattan at that time, and that would also use electrified trains.
1: And this was something that was already being discussed by the New York Central's head officers, you know, a chief among them, William Wilgus, who was the chief engineer. Wilgus pushed the railroad not only to convert to electricity, but also noticing that, you know, they were already running out of space. They might as well take that opportunity to make the station much larger.
2: And all of that, of course, would lead to the construction of Grand
1: Central Terminal. Right. The third building. And so when was this constructed? Well, it took about a decade from 1903 until 1913, uh, while the station was still open for business. But 1903 to 1913, you can see that this transformation and the construction project here was happening at the exact same time that Penn Station was also under construction over between 7th and 8th Avenues. Of course, what Grand Central
2: needed to do was quite different than what the Penn Railroad needed to do because Grand Central's tracks had been above ground here for many decades. And, of course, it had two previous stations where Penn built one from scratch.
1: And because of that, Grand Central Terminal would also have to dig very, very deeply to accommodate an innovation here, which was two levels of tracks. Um, speaking of which, the, the terminal was designed by a team of architectural firms, not just one firm, but two, Warren and Wetmore, along with Reed and Stem. Warren and Wetmore would design the building and make it beautiful, while Reed and Stem would handle the more technical, railroady aspects of the station, mm-hmm. of the terminal. But they were up for the job. And Warren and Wetmore, we should add, were also very connected. They were very well known already in in New York. They designed the New York Yacht Club along with other big buildings and connected because, by the way, Whitney Warren was William Vanderbilt's cousin. But from what I remember, wasn't Reed and Stem, this other architectural firm, weren't they also related in some way to the Vanderbilt's? Yes. Remember, Wilgus, the, the chief engineer of the railroad... Well, Stem of Reed and Stem was Wilgus's cousin. But they were well-regarded, I guess, right? Oh, absolutely. Reed and Stem, they had grown quite famous designing railroad
2: stations. Their relationship with the Vanderbilts flowered throughout the 1910s.
1: As their business was blossoming, yes. I swear I didn't plant those jokes. <laughs> We'll get to the root of that later, oh! but when, um, but so
2: this so this opened in 1913, February 2nd of 1913, right?
1: Uh, just almost exactly 105 years ago.
2: That's amazing. Tom, why don't you give us a virtual walkthrough? Although, thankfully, you can actually walk through it. But why don't you give <laughs> us for for our listening audience a little bit of a virtual tour?
1: Okay, we'll make this quick. But let's start on the outside south of the station, looking up at it. And the building extends west over to Vanderbilt Avenue, which Cornelius built when he built that first one in the 1870s, and east to where it abuts the Grand Hyatt, New York. Now, the the limestone exterior is classic Beaux-Arts beauty from the street level all the way up to the crowning sculpture at the very top there, The Glory of Commerce by Jules-Félix Coutin, a French sculptor. Uh, And that sits atop a massive 13-foot diameter clock, which is made of Tiffany glass.
2: And it's essentially just three gods, the the depiction of three gods. uh, But perhaps a uh, more powerful being than these mythical gods was the man who was standing below them.
1: Yes, you can wave hello to the statue of Cornelius Vanderbilt himself, which is standing near the viaduct in the middle of the building. We can actually step inside through various entrances
2: here, but let's mm-hmm. enter on the 42nd side under the under the Pershing Square
1: overpass. Yes, the, the viaduct, which opened in 1919. So it wasn't open when the, when the terminal opened in 1913. Various shops on both sides, but we're going to walk inside through the central doors and walk down a kind of sloping walkway toward the main concourse. And we're passing what were waiting rooms on both sides, one for men and one for women, Uh, which today often hosts special events and installations. The western side is now home to a food hall, but we're going to keep walking down Mm -hmm. into the main concourse um, where there's a lot of activity and heading... Down to the sun-drenched cavernous room, which is lined with enormous granite columns, straight to the circular information kiosk, which is topped by perhaps the most famous four-faced clock in the city.
2: <laughs> Nay, the United States, perhaps. But, I mean, we're kind of like sweeping here without kind of really understanding this gr- the
1: grandeur of this room. It's well, one of the biggest spaces in New York City. Well, so spin around and take it in. <laughs> There's ticket counters on the south side of the room. And there are entrances to the upper-level train platforms just on the north side. That's tracks 11 to 42. And back during the heyday of cross-country train travel, this is where you would have boarded uh, those mainline trains, you Mm -hmm. know, to head off to Chicago or take the 20th Century Limited
2: Back in the day, all the commuter trains were downstairs, although today all of the trains are commuter trains. Right. Now, I just want to add that the sound, the soothing cacophony of voices are coming from all directions, from the Apple store to the commuters who are coming on and off the trains to the people from the shops and even those people who are having cocktails up at the Michael Jordan Steakhouse.
1: <laughs> all of these, all of these noises mm-hmm. sort of buzzing
2: about but now we've swirled in a circle. Why don't we just stare straight up
1: into the sky? <laughs> and behold the delightful astronomical delight, the constellations in a dreamy aqua greenish hue. Uh, this fabulous ceiling installation. Uh, dates back to 1912. Uh, It was executed by 50 painters and has been meticulously restored today. Now listen, depending on what train we're boarding, we'll either hang out here or head downstairs where there are 27 more tracks, loads of concessions, and one of our favorite old-school restaurants in the city, the Oyster Bar, which opened with the terminal in 1913 and is the oldest business still operating in the station. So now New York,
2: by the mid-1910s, had two fantastic train stations. What were the physical differences? I mean, what? what how did people obs- observe and view the two
1: stations? Well, Grand Central was bigger in many ways. It had more tracks. First of all, 46 tracks compared to Penn Station's 21 tracks. Another major difference with Grand Central that's quite obvious to anybody going there still today is the use of ramps in the construction. There are basically no or very few stairs in the entire terminal. I mean, aside from going down to, what, the subway station um, or taking the, the sweeping marble staircase up to the Apple Store, you'll really hardly even step up or down, except when you board a train. That is far different from the original Penn Station. Penn Station was just a cascading series of, of stairs of stairs of
2: staircases and, and loges and loges. It was hardly wheelchair accessible.
1: Another difference. Grand Central has has two levels of underground platforms, um, which because of the the switch over to electricity, one of the benefits here was that they were able to have two different levels of platforms and fit more trains into the station. But another benefit of going with electricity is that they could literally cover their tracks, which they did. They, they initially covered up the open train yards north of the station up to 50th and 59th Street, and they opened up this whole area to development, really converting their train yards into what would be called Park Avenue and uh, the greater development area, which would be called Terminal City.
2: And this will play into our story a little bit later here because this is kind of found money. Like they created income um, by exploiting these rights, which we call air rights today.
1: One other interesting difference is that they actually designed Grand Central Terminal to incorporate a skyscraper above it, which is very different from Penn Station. They, They had invested in supports for the roof so that it would be able to hold up a structure above it the railroad was already thinking about ways to take advantage of the real estate on top of the station.
2: Although that plan, early plan, fell through. right? But would be in the back of
1: people's minds later in the century. And the story here at Grand Central in the 1920s and 30s and and 40s is very similar to what was happening over at Penn Station. Boom time followed by depression, followed by another boom time during the war years because there was a lot of military uses for the railroads. But following the war, things got really tricky for the railroads. Long-distance train travel fell out
2: of fashion and was overtaken by the automobile and the airline, which we spoke about in our Penn Station show. Railroad freight service was greatly reduced with advances in trucking and container shipping. This, of course, left most of the traffic just as commuting even though that was also reduced by cars thanks to the new interstate highway system. Now, in particular, let's not forget to throw into the mix all of the machinations of Robert Moses here in New York City in the 1950s. And he was basically luring people away from train travel as well, all of his highway projects.
1: And all of those factors combined to sink the Pennsylvania Railroad, uh, which we talked about in the last show, But hold on. Wasn't the Pennsylvania Railroad actually larger than the New York Central? It
2: was. uh, It was larger and it went to more routes. But what Central had that Penn did not have was all of that real estate just north of the station. Now, it had been developed as Terminal City, Mm -hmm. you know, throughout the the 10s and 20s and 30s. Well, they redeveloped it in the 1950s and 1960s, a new wave of buildings. They tore those old ones down that were kind of short, you know, relatively speaking, and built a whole new group of office buildings. That, of course, gave them a little bit of extra money to, like, hold them over for a few
1: years. So in the 50s and 60s, the railroad just continued to cash in on their air rights. But the
2: crazy thing is in a way that almost made Grand Central Terminal, the building here, almost more obsolete because the executives at New York Central began to look at that actual footprint where the building stood. And they kept thinking, well, this could be used in a better way, we think, because by the 50s, this was in terrible shape. The walls were plastered with garish advertisements, you know, any way possible. They could just make a little extra dime. By the 1960s, it was just considered unsafe. It was a shelter for the homeless.
1: But back over on the west side in the 1950s, the Pennsylvania Railroad is already hatching plans, maybe not taking them public, but working on plans to replace their station and and put it underground.
2: Yeah, those guys were already thinking about replacing Penn Station. Some ideas were also being hatched over here at Grand Central. First on the chopping block was that less impressive six-story Grand Central office building that sat north immediately behind it and just south of the New York Central building, which is today's Helmsley Building. So it was just a little office building of just unspectacular merit. The first idea in 1954 was a commission by architect I.M. Pei of an insane skyscraper, absolutely ridiculous, 1,600 feet tall. And you think that's... Is that even possible? uh, To date, there's only one other building in New York City taller than that, and that's one World Trade Center at, at 1,776 feet. That's true. So this would have been the second tallest. But it was also ridiculously shaped. In fact, it was called the hyperboloid because it was basically a column that was cinched in the waist, very melodramatic silhouette upon the skyline by 1958 that project would evolve into something a little bit more traditional that would be built on that site and finally completed in 1963 and that
1: of course would be the pan am or the MetLife building the magnificent pan am building and we have an entire podcast on that building if you're Looking to hear more about that. What year again did that open?
2: 1963, the same year that we saw the destruction of Penn Station. So this incredible indignity that was going on in the railroad industry at this time. But even greater than that, this building that was called the pan am building for its primary tenant so it was like the airline industry was choking the life out of long distance railroad travel literally hovering
1: above it although i guess you could say that it was also in some ways subsidizing the railroads because it was giving them at least you know some more cash well
2: that's the that is the glass half full way of looking (laughs) at this
1: so i'm trying (laughs) but seriously i mean look The Pan Am building did tide over the railroad. It increased their fortunes for a number of years. Just long enough for it to survive for just a couple years longer. Right, because in 1965, the city finally passed the landmarks law and gave them proper authority to stop demolition on buildings that were designated landmarks. Yes, the Landmarks
2: Preservation Commission was formed by that law in 1965, and they were able to protect some of the endangered treasures of New York.
1: And Grand Central must have been on their radar right away, on their to-do list.
2: Well, I mean, they had such building as Astor Library and Merchant House and Federal Hall, and even the Prospect Park Boathouse, which is on there. But believe it or not, Grand Central was not on that first list of priorities. That would come later, though. By August 6, 1967, Grand Central would be declared a New York City landmark. Declared a landmark, which means what precisely? Well, it it means all sorts of things for for a building. We're not going to get into all the benefits, but one of the main changes, uh, especially in the case of buildings that were privately owned, was that in order to make any changes to its exterior, you would have to get the commission's permission to do so. And you certainly couldn't demolish it without waging a serious fight. And indeed, New York Central did have plans, or should I say by this point, Penn Central. For although New York Central was getting about $1 million in revenue from rentals at the Pan Am building, it was not enough to stop the financial leakage. So in 1968, they merged with Pennsylvania Railroad, now calling themselves Penn Central. And then that company took aim at the Grand Central footprint. Now... As we just said, they could not outright tear it down, but they could, at least they intended or they imagined that they could gut the building or alter it
1: irreparably, granted, of course, that they could get permission. Okay. So the railroad could not demolish Grand Central, Mm -hmm. uh, but they could, I take it— Build around it or even on top of it. <laughs> yes. And in fact, the plan that they cooked up uh,
2: was one by an architect named Marcel Broyer. It was a 55 story building that would sit right on top. Of Grand Central. There were actually kind of two different proposals. I'm not sure which one is worse. The first one would have destroyed that glorious facade with the clock on it. That would have been gone. The second proposal kept that, but then ripped up the Grand Hall. Ugh. So yeah. So any way you slice it, it's it's defacing the building.
1: And in both propositions, basically it looks like an enormous office tower sitting right on top of the station. Like it's wearing the most absurd party hat (laughs) you've ever seen.
2: And sitting right in front of Pan Am. Another one. (laughs) Well, no surprise, on August 26, 1969, the Landmarks Commission rejected the idea, stating, quote, to balance a 55-story office tower above a flamboyant Beaux-Arts facade seems
1: nothing worse than an aesthetic joke. (laughs) Well said, Landmarks Commission. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But wait, at the same time, aren't they also saying that, hey, Penn Central Railroad, even though you own this building, it's your private property, Mm -hmm. you're not allowed to tear it down and do what you want with it. Yeah, that's exactly what
2: they said. And so no surprise, Penn Central sued the city of New York for not allowing them to to build what they wanted on this spot. The case went to the state Supreme Court. What was at stake here was the utter life and death of the company, and perhaps even the operation of all Northeast Rail service, because by 1970, Penn Central filed for bankruptcy. It was the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history.
1: So the case goes before the state Supreme Court, and
2: what happened then? Well, and this did, by the way, we're just we're jumping so quickly through time, but this actually takes many years in the court, in the, uh, in the system. However, in 1975, the court ruled for Penn Central. Justice Irving Sapo invalidated Grand Central's landmark designation. To quote from the New York Times on January 22nd, 1975, Grand Central landmark voided justice Sapole did not question the constitutionality of the city's landmark law but he did find that the law's application in the case of grand central terminal by preventing the bankrupt railroad from earning the income it would receive from the office tower caused economic hardship and therefore constitutes a
1: taking of property so the state supreme court strips Grand Central Terminal of its landmark protection, Mm -hmm. allowing Penn Central Railroad to demolish it. And they proceeded with their plans to build an office tower.
2: It did, in fact, look like New York City was about to lose its second great train station. The only way this could be saved was taking the battle all the way to the top, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that battle was waged in part— thanks to one of the most famous women
1: in the world. And we'll get to the rescue of Grand Central after this. On April 19th, 1995, a federal
2: building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still
1: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans. Our values, our struggles...
2: Completed in 1913, it's probably one of the best-known buildings in the country, Grand Central Station. And now the Penn Central Railroad, which owns Grand Central, is talking about building a 59-story office tower above the terminal. The Grand Central complex, including eight hotels, would take about $850 million to build today. A group calling itself the Committee to Save Grand Central Station is trying to stop any alteration of the building. One of those on the committee, Mrs. Jacqueline Onassis.
3: I think uh, if we don't care about our past, we can't have very much hope for our future. And we've all heard that it's too late or that it has to happen or that it's inevitable. But I don't think that's true. Because I think if there is a great effort, even if it's at the 11th hour,
1: you can succeed. And I think and I know that that's what we'll do. Thank you. Now, Greg, when you left us, you dangled this cliffhanger of this... The savior to the story, a celebrity. Yeah, the
2: most famous woman in the world. Now, who would that have been in 1975?
1: I think you're talking about Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, who was herself no stranger to preservation. She had, after all, restored the White House and when she resided within it. And she lived in the city with her children. And she was raised in the city. And of course, now our story is in the 1970s, she's living in New York again and she's reading all about this battle, you know, that's going on around Grand Central. She wants to get involved. Now, meanwhile, at the Municipal Art Society in early 1975, uh, the executive director Kent Barwick and his team were were forming the Committee to Save Grand Central Station, and they were they were planning to hold a news conference uh, to announce their formation of this committee at the oyster bar at grand central and it was at this important moment when Jacqueline kennedy onassis picked up the phone after reading about this in the times and she called up kent to see how she could help out and we're going to let kent tell the story of what happened next but just keep in mind that the organizations who were fighting for for grand Central's survival in this case Landmarks Preservation, Municipal Arts Society, other activists. They needed star power. Because they
2: weren't just trying to sell this to regular New Yorkers, but they actually had to sell it to City Hall itself because they had to be the ones that waged this battle. And in 1975,
1: City Hall and the city is broke. Yeah, they're
2: preoccupied with other things.
1: There were (laughs) fires to put up. There were other crises to attend to. Could they really afford to fight for this beautiful old Beaux-Arts train station, you know? Where did that rank on their priorities? So they needed somebody, you know, with enough star power to push this issue and persuade the mayor that it was worth it to appeal the state Supreme Court's decision that you just mentioned. And, and to keep pushing this as, as far as it could go until it could be overturned and the bulldozers could be stopped. So with Jackie involved, they could actually get people's attention and make a splash. Yeah. And they made a splash right at right here at the Oyster Bar uh, at their press conference and at other rallies. You know, there would be years of legal back and forth that would lead all the way up the system of courts. And, you know, at many of these rallies, many sensational over the top demonstrations, Jackie would be among those fighting to save the station. On
2: December 5th, 1977, the U.S. Supreme Court announced that it would take on the Penn Central case. It would be argued a few months later on April 17th, 1978. Penn Central Transportation Company versus New York City, as the case is called, would determine once and for all the power that urban areas had in protecting historic treasures and would define the roles that private entities had in exploiting their properties for landmark designation.
1: Okay, so the story's gone all the way to the Supreme yeah. Court, and it's, it's about more than just this station. It becomes <laughs> yeah. about landmarking in general. Right. I mean, this is it.
2: So the morning, the day before, on April 16th, an extraordinary sight was found, actually, at Penn Station. A, A huge number of people were boarding a train that they called the Landmark Express. According to the New York Times, quote, accompanied by clowns, Fire eaters, mimes, and tootling musicians, hundreds of New York celebrities, led by Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, traveled to Washington aboard a landmark express train yesterday to drum up support for the preservation of Grand Central Terminal. As the train rumbled across the countryside, volunteers ran up and down the aisles, passing out blue and white Save Grand Central balloons, T-shirts and buttons, as well as box lunches, hamburgers, soft drinks and cookies that had been donated by McDonald's. <laughs> I'm just imagining Jackie
1: O like eating a McDonald's Happy Meal. <laughs> Basically a Happy Meal. It's a, it's a landmark express meal. But what happens next is truly dramatic, and as we mentioned earlier, we're going to meet up with someone now who was there and who was a critical part in this entire fight to save the terminal. Kent Barwick was president of the Municipal Arts Society during this fight, and it was Kent who picked up the phone when Jackie called the Municipal Arts Society, and he was kind enough to also sit down with us and give us an insider's account of what happened next. So we left this story at, let's say, 1975, and the landmark's designation has been invalidated by the court, but at the same time, the Municipal Arts Society is trying to figure out what the next step is, and as legend has it, you pick up the phone one day because there's an interesting caller on the phone.
3: Well, that's, that's the second thing that happens. The first thing that happens is that this case dragged on, and for a long, long time... Drags
1: on at the state level
3: dragged down in in New York State, our lowest court is called the Supreme Court. People weren't even thinking about it. And we heard from the Landmarks Commission that that the case was about to be decided. And I thought to myself, well, I better try to bring myself up to speed on this. And at that time, the Municipal Arts Society was working very closely with the City Planning Commission on the soon-to-be-opened 2nd Avenue subway, which (laughs) your (laughs) great-grandchildren may see the opening of. And so I spent a lot of time at City Planning. I was down there one Saturday, and I said to somebody in the law office there, do you have any files on Grand Central? And they brought me out a... A file that must have been about two feet high, and I opened up the file, and on top was a letter. The letter is from the incoming corporate corporation counsel, a guy named Bernie Richland, saying that Richland had met with the judge, he'd met with the, with the railroad, uh, the city was going to lose the case, The railroad had generously volunteered that they wouldn't press their suit for millions of dollars worth of damages if the city would agree not to appeal the decision. And I'm recommending, says the incoming corporation counsel to the mayor, I'm recommending we do not appeal.
1: Whoa. Mm. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Recommending because it would be too costly, and like from a legal standpoint?
3: Well, the, the city was at risk. At the same time that the uh, uh, railroad brought the suit against the law, they also brought a suit for damages. You've cost oh. us oh. zillions of dollars, you know. And so I thanked the clerk who gave me the file and went home and said, like, holy smokes, what, what, are, what are we going to do? So that's when we decided to form the committee to save Grand Central Terminal. And happily, the New York Times was covering local events in those days, and they covered it. And among the readers of the story was Jackie. And so that's what led to that phone call.
1: So, so, so Jackie then picks up her Morning Times, she's reading that piece, and she decides, because she's a fan of historical preservation and the city means a lot to her, uh, that she wants to get involved, see how she can help out.
3: Well, she didn't explain... Uh, at first, uh, my, my secretary uh, said, There's a woman on the phone who claims to be Jackie Onassis. And, and so I said, Of And of course, it was unmistakably her. And I was immediately fawning. And, and uh, so. And what did she say exactly? Well, she said that she wanted to be helpful. And I said, Oh, well, that's Mrs. Onassis, such a terrific. We're planning to have a press conference soon. Uh, I'm sure you're very busy, but I will let you know your staff know as soon as possible uh, when that is. So she said, well, "I'm pretty much around." Be and then I said, "Well, we're working on a statement, and as soon as we have it polished, we'll send it over to your assistant." And She said, "Well, actually, I don't have an assistant. You just send it over to me." She, uh, I what? mean, and at, ev- <laughs> at every turn, she was open and relaxed and funny. And we did send a statement over, and she rewrote it because she she's a very good writer, a very good editor. But she got involved in 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 Grand Central. She became a larger voice. We had a great number of really great people on the committee: Brendan Gill, and Philip Johnson. And but she, of course, just elevated it to a different level. And because
1: she made it an, a national story, it became
3: a, a, a national story, and her way of talking about history you know and architecture was well if we don't if we don't protect the best of our past then how will we have any future i mean she had lines like that that were much better but she she was really she didn't say much but when she said anything it was uh, it, it really resonated with people and we began to get you know 5 dollar bills from ohio people helping helping with the campaign. I think there were people who sent us $5 bills that uh, uh, maybe had never been to Grand Central Terminal. I remember also she was a good writer, and she wrote a letter to Mayor Beam. And the beginning of the letter was, Dear Abe, Grand Central Terminal was so important to President Kennedy, (laughs) or to Jack. uh, uh, I don't know about... And he, what fact-checking would prove, he'd, he'd probably been through, you know, one afternoon when he was in his 20s. But, no, she, but did, she. was, was she it was, effective? I mean, do you she think... was both a sympathetic person and a nice person and a funny person. But she didn't have all those, uh, hang around with those Kennedys and not pick up anything. She was an extremely strategic person.
1: And, and that letter to Mayor Beam, that was to... Uh, suggest to him to persuade him oh yes
3: the whole the whole goal initially of the committee you know was if if the city wasn't going to appeal it was all over your grand central terminal was about to be torn down so that getting beam to agree to the appeal was everything and jackie's participation really helped
2: Wow, oh, that's, I mean, what's interesting about this especially is we're talking the mid 1970s in New York where there's a, a lot of financial hardships going on, and yet uh, there was a, all of a sudden, a renewed interest uh, to save this particular historic landmark. Uh, because of her contribution so i guess the phone i assume ran rang off the hook after that and there were many rallies and different kinds of things after yes. that because of her or in addition to her participation
3: yeah, I, I don't think that the in, in new york i think there was a separate reaction i think the destruction of penn station had a greater impact after it was gone on people People then began to say, well, wait a minute, how did, how did that happen? You know, mm-hmm. So there was a real sea change in the way New Yorkers felt about things. And so Jackie, I'm sure, helped that. But it, that was genuine even before even events that she had nothing to do with. We we did stage all these events. We had Larry Adler play the harmonica in front of that statue <laughs> of Commodore Vanderbilt. Right. Up we had Broadway cast um, uh, when the Democratic Convention came to New York. Fred Pappert uh, arranged for there a big be a big switch. Uh, Jackie threw the switch. It didn't really work, but 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 uh, Grand Central Terminal was illuminated, and that you know. People came over from the Democratic convention to see it so yeah. so so we got to be good at stagecraft
1: here you are fighting for this for the preservation of this structure that you don 't own and the city doesn 't really technically own at that moment, right and you 're fighting against a company a company that wants to demolish it, but has, that has also gone bankrupt and is even defunct. So,
3: there's, even, there's another party in this, and that's an important party, which is Penn Central had leased the station to, to America's least favored government corporation, the Metropolitan Transportation <laughs> Authority. And they were backstage absolutely fabulous in helping us, uh, and partly because they didn't want to lose it, you know they were New Yorkers, and they, and they cared. So the so Penn Central, yes, it was bankrupt, and they were, you know, crying, you know, poverty all the time. But the terminal was being used; it was leased, operated. The, the floors were swept, not very adequately. The bathrooms were cleaned once every three years, but by the, by the MTA.
1: So when you guys were staging some fabulous hijinks, you know, flipping a switch, playing a harmonica, you didn't have to run it by Penn Central. No, no. By the no,
3: MTA. No. MTA. and They weren't out front about it, but they were really helpful. There's this famous
2: press conference at the oyster bar in grand central that a lot of people look to also as a defining moment in the building's preservation um how did that come to about that, that also had jackie there
3: we decided uh this was what the the earlier phone call was about we we had to have a press conference to announce it and we we worked with the, uh, the wonderful guy that owned the oyster bar and we, was, we were going to have it there and jackie and invited the press and I remember it well because I was seated next to Jackie who was, you know, sort of holding her notes. And uh, Congressman Koch was late to the press conference, and there was no chair. And I gave him my chair. And I think that's probably the reason years later I was appointed by him to be chair of the Landmarks Commission. From one chair to another. Chair, that reminds me (laughs) But she was extremely you know there were the usual all the political people made the right speeches, and then and then Jackie spoke so softly that everybody else in the room had to just be quiet and she only said three sentences and and that was it you know the, the, the It took off then as as a story and throughout the many years that it went through the courts, there were many more courts to go through before it got to the Supreme Court, we had to keep the public pressure up. But we did. I mean, the the public cared about Grand Central, and then elected officials cared, and then the newspapers cared. And so pressure, even as it went through the courts, and after that initial court decision against the city... From then on, the decisions were a lot friendlier.
1: But Penn Central would continue to appeal on their side.
3: Oh, absolutely. Oh, sure. They had, you know, a lot of a big financial upside if if they could get rid of this, this designation.
1: So back and forth in the courts, but mostly with city victories and yes. Penn Central appealing, appealing, appealing all the way up to the Supreme Court.
3: Right, finally it's going to go to the Supreme Court and that's extremely worrisome because the Supreme Court has not been noted for upholding, you know, it's a new concept that you can. So we were very worried about it and we uh, this landmark express was put together by the Municipal Arts Society to sort of carry a group of people to to Washington. Senator Moynihan was our ally and so was Joan Mondale. Who was the Vice Pres president, Vice President's Mondale was the Vice President then. And we put together this train ride. And there were a lot, our lawyers were very worried about it. They didn't want me to go, because I was working for the city at this point as chairman of the Landmarks Commission. That's how much time had gone by. It'd been about mm-hmm. ten years in this. And but we did, and it was a, a great a, a great success. And we got to Union Station in Washington and there was a huge crowd there with, led by Joan Mondale and, and Moynihan to welcome us. And I think it was probably the, one of the first times publicly that Jackie had been back to, uh, to Washington. I'm, sh- I'm sure she'd been for private events, but no public events. And it was a big deal. Uh, then there was the argument in front of the Supreme Court. I think that was the next day, which was terrifying. I didn't have a seat. The city had so, so many people from city government that I didn't have a ticket, and a friend of mine... Who knew Justice Powell called up? And she said, "I have a friend who's coming from New York. He's on the Limous Commission. And I wonder if he could get a, a chair." And he said, "Yeah, what case is he interested in?" I mean, that, that's how the court wasn't really thinking about this as the momentous thing that we thought it was, but it was momentous. Uh, and were we encouraged? We were scared. I I remember the the morning of the, of the Argument, and um, the lawyer for the railroad was a very, very handsome guy with incredibly beautiful suit from Covington and Burling, and he was spinning this thing. He said, "Well, Your you know, uh, if I have a client who's a farmer down in the Manassas Valley, and you're telling me that the public can come in and take away his barn." Uh, 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 and the justices are all nodding. You know? No. So our lawyer, who's this fabulous guy named Lenny Kerner, the city's lawyer, he's still working for the Corporation Council. He should have a statue somewhere. Well, of course, he stands up. His suit doesn't match. His hair is, right, he has a you know New York Jewish accent. He's so fabulous. <laughs> that. Uh, Half our time was taken by, but this time the Justice Department had come in, and so we only had half the time that you would usually have because the Justice Department and their lawyers weren't that good. And then when, they, when they, it's over, in, you know, in 20 minutes, the whole thing is uh, you hardly get a chance to finish a sentence before you're, you're interrupted. And I still remember at the end of our 90% of the people in the room stood up to leave. even You know, there must be... You know, nine cases being argued that, time. and the justices looked up. I think they were sort of hadn't figured there would be so much interest in this. Now, did that affect the decision? I don't. Know. Who knows? But the but the, uh, it was a brilliant decision, which not only found that New York had the right to protect significant historic properties, with the usual constitutional protections, but but this time. Other cities had come in as amicus curiae, friends of the court. And so Chicago and other major American cities had come in. So this was really a victory for all those cities and little towns across the country.
2: What tools did this verdict basically provide you as um because clearly this sort of set a new metric for things that you could do now um both for the landmarks commission for the municipal art society and these other organizations that would soon form afterwards um all of that was in the wake of this verdict right
3: well well in in the one hand the, the the court was relieved to find that new york had a plan that this wasn't just you know, random stuff. The law also had a hardship procedure. You know, before historic preservation statutes, there were zoning statutes, and those early cases found that cities had the right to be safe and clean and whatnot. So you can't take away somebody's property with, without due process. There has to, there have to be relief mechanisms. And so the, the, the Supreme Court looked at the law, they looked at the materials submitted by our corporation counsel, Hard the city had worked to relieve hardships, you know, with allowing the transfer of development rights, um, among other things. What, what it did was to provide the imprimatur of basic constitutionality. On it, it didn't necessarily guarantee that there wouldn't be struggles, that there wouldn't be cases where buildings had to be torn down. You know, there there are places where buildings had to be torn down. There are hard hardships that will occur, but this this was a liberating moment. Yes.
1: And, and, and the courts were saying that it, at a basic level, it wasn't a designation by the Landmarks Commission was not a take
3: by no, the city. It was not a taking, that, that's correct.
1: Well, thank you very much for taking the time to meet with us today and explain some of the story, the inside scoop of the story to our listeners.
2: Yeah, this has a, been a privilege. Thank you for spending all time with us here in Little Italy. And again, thanks for everything that you did, because it's a, it's. Why we have a podcast, because <laughs> we actually have a city to talk about.
3: <laughs> uh, absolutely, and there's a, there are dozens of struggles all around us, so far from over. And <laughs> Since you guys are the Bowery Boys, I hope you will spend some time helping get some decent zoning on the Bowery and some reasonable historic preservation, because great, this great avenue of history that you have chosen for yeah. your uh-huh. signature <laughs> is imperiled. Well,
1: so... Perhaps we'll be talking to you again soon. Thank you very much, Mr. Barwick. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much. We're back in the
2: studio. And Tom, I mean, I I just have to say, like, he made history. Like, we actually had someone on our show that is part of the actual history that we're telling. It's pretty profound. Greg and I were a little bit awestruck Mm -hmm. by that experience. (laughs) Uh, Needless to say. So it was uh, June 27th where the court announced its ruling at a 6-3 decision in favor of the city of New York. In what the press called, you'll appreciate this, the press called it a landmark decision. No! In 1994, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, the good old MTA, signed a 280-year lease. (laughs) Two hundred
1: and eighty. How do you get a 280-year lease?
2: This country is not even 280 years old. So anyway, this huge, huge lease, and then uh, began a massive restoration of Grand Central Terminal, which took most of the 1990s to complete. But essentially, they took the building, because of these renovations, back to its original 1913 glory. Now... Tom mentioned earlier that we took a tour of Grand Central Terminal.
1: Yes, we took a tour
2: yesterday with Deborah Zelser, uh, who led the Municipal Arts Society tour. Do you remember when Deborah actually took us outside of the building to look at something very interesting that was happening across the street? Across Vanderbilt Avenue. Yes, at one Vanderbilt. And I think this is something that everyone needs to stop and stare at if you do head into Grand Central, because there, but for the grace of God, could have been Grand Central. Essentially, that, the older structure that was there, that was not landmarked, was torn down, and a super tall skyscraper is being built in its place. Now, our tour guide walked us through the tangled story of the Grand Central air rights and the controversy of this building, which we're not going to get into. But when completed, the super tall with its spire is going to be 1,401 feet, making it the fourth tallest building in New York. And how tall was that hyperboloid supposed to be? 1,600 feet. So just imagine in your head what we're missing out on. On this particular spot. An
1: even taller building, though with a cinched, a cinched waist.
2: <laughs> Which, you know, maybe we think would be charming today in 2018. Maybe we'd like that architecture. So anyway, as we, as we mentioned, the Municipal Arts Society has tours of
1: Grand Central Terminal. We'd like to thank our tour guide, Deborah Zelser, who also runs her own tour company, Prowler NYC Guided Walks. And Greg, she even has a Jackie O tour.
2: And there are many Jackie-related spots in New York City for her to go on, I'm sure.
1: We'd also like to thank Megan, Tara, and everybody at the Municipal Arts Society for their help with this show. And, you know, this is a rather big year.
2: A landmark year? (laughs) For the Municipal Arts Society. They are celebrating their 125th anniversary. You can check out their website to learn about ways, as they say, to engage the betterment of the city. They have tours, they have walks, they have huge programs, events, and activism of all sorts. That's mas.org. And finally, of course, we want to sincerely uh, thank Kent Barwick
1: for taking the time to sit down with us. And a big thank you to our patrons who keep us going um, and who are allowing us to devote you know, all the time that's necessary to develop and expand this show. We would not be able to spend our days producing this show without your generous help. This week's patron-only
2: podcast will be the full-length interview with Mr. Barwick.
1: So to join more than 700 other listeners uh, in your support for the Bowery Boys, head to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys to get in on the fun. In addition, you can join us
2: at our website, of course, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have lots of glorious pictures of Grand Central Terminal and Ms. Jackie Kennedy Onassis, And as well on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bowery Boys. So thank you very much for joining us. Finally, a happy ending. (laughs) Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.